I first met Orson, I'm guessing, but I think it would be about 1946. I met him in the cutting room of the lady from Shanghai. I kept in touch with Orson, and I think I really first became aware that there was a potential in my friendship with Orson when I went to see the movie The Third Man. Well, once I saw the movie, I realized that this was a memorable part. Uh, some people I worked with had just done a radio series with Humphrey Bogart, with Lauren McCall, the cockamania story about a couple who had a boat. It was all based on an earlier film of Bogart's in a vague sort of way, but they were selling it all over the world. And I thought, I'm sure a, a radio series with Orson in it would sell very well too. Victims? Be melodramatic. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spin? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax? The only way you can save money nowadays. A lot of good your money will do you in jail. That jail's in another zone. There's no proof against me. Besides you. In 1948, author Graham Greene was in Vienna, getting a tour of the city, its back alleys, less reputable nightclubs, and even its sewers. He was also introduced by actress Elizabeth Montague to Peter Smolka, the Central European correspondent for The Times. Greene was working on a novella that would become a screenplay called The Third Man. Greene sold the film rights to producers Alexander Korda and David O. Selznick. In the story, a man named Holly Martins comes to Vienna to accept a job with his friend Harry Lyme, only to learn that Lyme has died. Martins is a writer. He's told Lyme was killed by a car while crossing the street. At Lyme's funeral, Martins meets two British Royal Military Police, Sergeant Payne, a fan of Martins' books, and Major Calloway. Martins thinks that death is suspicious, so he stays in Vienna to investigate the matter. Calloway reveals that Lyme was stealing penicillin from military hospitals, diluting it, then selling it on the black market, injuring or killing countless infants. The police, convinced Lyme's girlfriend Anna is part of the ruse, are to send her to the Soviet sector, while Martins figures out that Lyme is a fugitive on the run and has faked his own death. Martins meets Lyme riding the Wiener Riesenrad. Afterwards, Martins agrees to help the police, provided that they allow Anna to leave Vienna. But Anna warns Lyme before they can arrest him. Lyme escapes in the sewers, shooting and killing Sergeant Payne. But Major Calloway shoots and badly wounds Lyme. Injured, Lyme drags himself up a cast iron stairway to a street grating. Martins finds Lyme at the grating and hears Calloway yelling to shoot him on sight. Lyme and Martins exchange a look, and then Martins shoots and kills him using Payne's pistol. Before I continue my story, I ought to tell you a reason why Orson Welles took the role of Harry Lyme in The Third Man. And it goes back to the making of the movie, and I know this story is true because it was told for me to be worth both by Orson and a famous film producer, a Hungarian, Alexander Korda. Uh, Korda was rather like Orson. He was always short of money, and his usual method 
of finding the money to make a movie was to take some successful producer in the United States and make him their distribution partner. Well, in this case, Corder had selected David O. Selznick, the infamous David O. Selznick. David O. Selznick wanted to cast Noel Card, another friend of mine, in the role of Harry Lyme. And Corder knew with every drip of blood in his Hungarian body that Noel Card was wrong, that Orson Welles was right. And he broke off his journey in uh, Rome to go and see Orson in the Grand Hotel, where Orson always stayed. And as he got off the plane from uh, London, he caught his very expensive alpaca overcoat on the railing of the gangway when he came out and tore it rather badly. So he sat down with Orson, and his problem was to convince Orson to do the third man. And he only wanted him for four weeks, and he wanted to pay him $50,000. And Orson was making movies in those days in Europe for 20th Century Fox. He had tax problems in the UK, which is why he came to Europe. And he was always getting $100,000. And he absolutely refused. And so Corder was getting a bit desperate. He knew the following day he'd be in New York, and Selznick would insist on Noel Card, and it was going to ruin the whole movie. And as he got up to go, he saw this tear in his overcoat. And he took the overcoat, and he flung it at the feet of Orson Welles. He said, here am I offering you the second best part in your entire life and you won't do it because you want too much money and here am I, the man who's producing the movie and I can't even afford a new overcoat. So Orson looks at the overcoat, looks at Paul and says, all right, I'll do it for 50,000. Orson Welles was cast as Lime with longtime Mercury Theatre friend Joseph Cotton cast as Martins. Yes, but it would tell you that that kind of radio doesn't exist today. I don't know what happened to it. I miss it. I figured out once that I'd been on more than 3,000 dramatic radio shows. By that time, we were up to 1950, and you were in The Third Man, again with Orson Welles. Right. Some great pictures. Well, I was lucky enough to fall in some very good scripts. Principal photography began in Vienna in early November of 1948, lasting for six weeks. The rest was done around London and completed in March of 1949. Then unknown composer Anton Karras was hired to create the musical score, performing it on a zither. The film was released in the UK in September of 1949, quickly becoming that year's most popular. When it was released in the US, audiences loved it. Time wrote that the film was crammed with cinematic plums that would do Hitchcock proud. Ingenious twists and turns of plot, subtle detail, full-bodied bit characters, atmospheric backgrounds that become an intrinsic part of the story, a deft commingling of the sinister with the ludicrous, the casual with the bizarre. At the 1951 Academy Awards, the film took home the award for Best Black and White Cinematography. Well, at the British equivalent, it won Best British Film. In the meantime, Wells and Tyrone Power made The Black Rose in 1950, directed by Henry Hathaway. Wells plays Mongolian warrior Bayan of the Hundred Eyes. Hathaway, who liked Wells, later said the casting was poor, with Wells purposely outwitting people during shooting. 
But now Orson must have been a fairly formidable part of your early life in radio and recordings. What kind of memories do you have of him now? Oh, so many memories. They're all pleasant ones, I'm glad to say. He was a wonderful man, one of the few real geniuses I've ever met. The other was Noah Coward. Orson made two radio series for me. Initially, uh, we made uh, The Lives of Harry Lyme. I knew that Orson, as usual, was looking for money. And I'd seen the movie The Third Man and realized that Harry Lyme was a wonderful character. While in England making The Third Man, Orson Welles became acquainted with Harry Allen Towers. Towers was a 30-year-old radio producer whose company, Towers of London, was heavily into syndicated productions in British, American, Australian and Canadian markets. His anthology series, Secrets of Scotland Yard, had proven that there was a lucrative market for high-end entertainment. And in Wells, he saw a personality and a talent that could quickly make his production company a leading one. As I happened at that stage of my life, I had the same literary agent as Graham Greene. So I asked him whether when Graham Greene had signed his contract with Sir Alexander Corder, he had protected the character rights. And my dear friend David Hyam said, what are character rights, Harry? I said, well, all I can tell you is there's a lot of money in them. And he said, well, I've looked up the contract and he never sold the character rights to Sir Alexander Corder. I said, great, will he sell them to me for a radio series? Oh, he says that the price is right, I'm sure he will. So I made that deal. Towers and Graham Greene had the same literary agent. Finding out that Greene hadn't sold the rights to Harry Lyme's character when he sold the screenplay, Towers quickly bought the rights to the character, with plans to put a syndicated radio series into production. Then I flew down to Rome, and strangely enough at this time, Orson was back in the Grand Hotel. He just made a cellar, and um, I said, would you do a radio series? He said, how much and when do I get paid? And I said, well, you get paid every day or every morning or every afternoon when you record an episode. And I gave him the C, I think it was a few thousand dollars, I can't really remember. But I, all I knew was he needed the money to finish off the cellar, so he accepted. And a few weeks later in a studio in Portland Place, just a few steps from where I lived then and live now still, um, in a radio studio, you heard the Harry Lime theme. And then there was a pistol shot. You heard the most wonderful voice in the world saying, that was the shot that killed Harry Lyme. Well signed with Towers to produce The Adventures of Harry Lyme. They were prequel stories showcasing some of the more good-hearted things Harry Lyme was supposed to have done. Only 16 of the episodes were acquired and broadcast by the BBC. It was also the first time that the BBC broadcast episodes of a dramatic series that it did not produce. The full 55 episodes were syndicated to radio stations in the U.S. Wells is credited as the author of 10 scripts, including the first episode, Too Many Crooks, which aired on August 3, 1951. The fifth episode was called Voodoo, something Orson Wells had a lot of experience with, dating back to his time in South America during World War II. In the case of Brazil, we were down there making a documentary film, partly for the government, but mostly mostly for a Hollywood studio. This was at the time of the good neighbor policy. And it was my task to make a large technicolor documentary on the subject of the carnival. And so we took up the whole question of samba and the samba orchestra. And when I'd nearly finished the film, it occurred to me that the origins of samba 
lay in voodoo ceremonies, particularly in Shangu, which are practiced up in uh, the favelas, those strange native settlements on the mountains, which are right in the midst of the city of Rio. And so I arranged with a good deal of difficulty to film a voodoo ceremony. And uh, we had protracted conversations with the head of the group. And uh, an advance payment was arranged for. He came to my office in Rio to discuss it. And it was my unhappy lot to have to tell him that the filming was off because I had just received word from Hollywood that the president of the film studio had been rather abruptly removed. A new president was in his place and the entire project was off. There was no more money to spend on voodoo ceremonies. And the witch doctor assured me that this was deeply offensive and uh, that he and his group took it very badly. And I said I was most sorry about it myself. I did want to finish the film and I did hope he understood. Ah, but he said, we have spent money. We have bought entirely new costumes. And I said, well, I'm awfully sorry, but there just isn't any money from Hollywood to pay you. And I, I don't know how I can explain to this new administration that the voodoo ceremony must continue, certainly not in the time already agreed on. And I was called away to the telephone again, left the doctor in my office, had a long conversation on the phone, begging and pleading to be allowed to finish this picture, which we rather liked. The material was very interesting, and I thought it would be a good thing to to finish since so much effort had gone into it and I was pleading my cause for some time praying that we would be able to and I came back to the office and found that the doctor had gone having been told that the deal was completely off and that on my desk in a script of the film was a long steel needle it had been driven entirely through the script and to the needle was attached a length of red wool. This was the mark of the voodoo. The end of that story is that it was the end of the film. We were never allowed to finish it. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamed of in our philosophy. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the motion picture The Third Man. With zither music by Anton Kara. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyme. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna as those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives. And I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. I've known many places and left them, made many friends and lost them, won many fortunes and spent them. My fate 
seems to be linked to a cosmic yo-yo. This is a story of a low point on one of the yo-yo trips down. This particular low point is known on the map as the island of Haiti. I arrived there as a sort of political refugee, a small revolution I'd been promoting in a nearby banana republic. It fizzled out on me, and the general I'd been backing backed out, and I found myself holding the bag. The bag, luckily, just happened to contain a few rolls of the U.S. Treasury's best lettuce, so when I descended on Haiti, I did it with style. Then, after a while, I spent the style. Don't let anybody tell you about the easy life on these tropical islands. You need dough in paradise, too. Of course, I still had my friends among the natives, but... Even they had become devoted students of the Rubiats. That is, they took the cash and let the credit go. Orson Welles is Harry Lyme, the third man in Voodoo. I am sorry, Monsieur Harry, no more. Oh, come on now, Georges. You've got a clean white cuff there, even for a bartender. Monsieur Harry, please understand. My boss, he supply my cuff. <laughs> I cannot mark it up any farther. Georges, are you trying to tell me that money makes that much difference to you? Do you prefer that sort of customer to me, that, that ambassador of ill will over there? The Babbitt who comes to Haiti to find somebody new in Toledo? Or do you prefer... Monsieur Harry, I prefer you. Oh, merci, old Every man. Every native I... on this island prefers Monsieur Harry. Well, then it's settled, huh? But the boss, he prefers his customer with the money. Oh, I should have known. Somehow, George, it never occurred to me that you'd sell out like the rest, go commercial. But, well, you, you've you been trapped too, George, cornered, impaled on the almighty dollar side. No, 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 mon ami, I well, mean... Well, to... George, it's getting late. Time for me to move on, I guess. That's your greatest fault, Harry Lyon. Always moving on. Hmm? What? And it's always getting so late. Dorna. <laughs> Hello, Harry, darling. Dorna, you beautiful, wonderful witch. Oh. What are you doing? Uh-uh. Let's not be trite, Harry. I could ask you the same question. Okay, then. Whom are you doing here? <laughs> Harry, darling. Three years haven't changed you a bit. Well, who is he? That one? No, no. Over there. The seer sucker suit. Oh, no, Dorna. Oh. Oh, he's really quite charming, Harry. Charming, eh? He's an oaf. I don't like the way he laughs. Oh, you'd adore him, darling. He pinches waitresses, collects souvenirs, collects money, too. Ah, I might have known. He's with you. <laughs> well, let's meet him. Uh, now, Harry. After you, mademoiselle. Oh, and, uh, Georges, you might tell your boss that Harry Lyme is on the preferred list again. I spent several pleasant moments following Dorna to the booth. As she snaked her way adroitly between the tables, it was difficult for me to focus my attention on her. Mark. Mark, in this case, was fat and perspiring. Of course, he was bald. His contributions to the aromas of the cafe were generous. His cigars, perspiration, and his money. Sam? Huh? Oh, hiya, baby. 
I was just going to send out a searching party for you. <laughs> uh, Sam, I'd like you to meet an old friend of mine, huh? Harry Lyme, Sam Torkin. Oh, very happy to meet you, Mr. Torkin. Oh, sit down, sit down. Any friend of Dorna's is a friend of mine. Well, within reason, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. Uh, you from the States too, Larry? Uh, Harry, Sam. Harry Lyme. Huh? Oh, yeah, Harry. Yeah, what part of the States are you from? I'm from Toledo. Toledo. Yeah. Eh? One of my plants is in Toledo. <laughs> a drink. Here, yeah, have a drink. Waiter, bring my friend a drink. Eh? <laughs> uh, Toledo, eh? <laughs> great little town. Yes, Toledo. sir. <laughs> of course, to me, any town's a great town as long as business is good. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> hey, you know, I'm, this is my first vacation in 18 years. 18 years. Can you imagine that? <laughs> He gabbled. For eternities, he gabbled. Dorna was obviously abused by my boredom, but my patience is always at a price. Torkin kept gabbling till I almost considered reducing that price, and then he gave me my cue. <sighs> sure is hot in these parts. Well, baby, come on, let's go out of this dump and find some souvenirs. Oh, Sam, not again. Now, what sort of souvenirs are you looking for, Mr. Torkin? Hmm? Oh, I don't know. The souvenirs are... Well, uh, souvenirs, ain't they? Now, come on, beautiful, let's... Uh, souvenirs can be more than souvenirs, Mr. Torkin. No, Lime, what kind of talk is no, that? Now, no, no, look, Mr. Torkin, you're a man of taste and means. Hey, a sales pitch! <laughs> hey, what are you selling, Lime? Yes, Harry, what are you selling? Uh, well, selling, I'm, I'm selling nothing, nothing but... Plain, ordinary common sense. It's at a premium on this island, Mr. Torkin. Yeah? I'll let him finish that. Let me tell you about Haiti, both of you. This island is steeped in sentiment. Not our kind, not the lace trim sort of thing. Sentiment here is a wild, untamed, primitive love, a sense of possession that defies the laws of man and nature. Now, listen to those drums, Torkin. Listen. They're telling you the secrets of Haiti. Huh? Do you understand them, Harry? As much as any civilized man is permitted to. Oh, that's, that's that voodoo stuff, in it? Well, they're not stuff, Torkin. Those drums are calling to the voodoo gods to smile upon the wedding of a native man and his beloved. The wedding rites are just beginning. They'll continue till dawn. It's the wedding of Fancy and Grigri. Who? Fancy. Works as a waiter in a hotel here in town. His father got in a jam once with a planter, and I just happened to save his neck. That counts for something here in Haiti. Oh, that reminds me. If you'll excuse me. Hey, where are you going? I'm going to the wedding. You're going up there? Oh, take us with you. Well, I wish I could, Dorna, but, well, I... Hey, 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 wait a minute now. Sit down, sit down. Now, what about all this uh, sentiment and souvenirs and all? Well, all right. Look, Haiti is crawling with priceless relics, anthropological prizes, historical symbols. They bring fantastic prices from any museum in the States. Oh, where do they sell them? Well, they're not selling them, Torka. You've got to know the island. You've got to know the people to find them. Well, how come they're worth so much? Sentiment, old man, sentiment. The voodoo brand. The natives protect their sacred symbols with their lives. And of course, they're, they're the raw materials. Huh? Little sentimental trinkets, diamonds, rubies, sapphires, miscellaneous baubles. The kind of sentiment we understand. Oh, I love souvenirs like that. Oh, huh. Well, okay, Lime. I guess you can get me one of them baubles. Yes, that's possible. Now, what's your deal? Well, first, let me find a suitable trinket. Time enough then to bargain. For now, Mr. Torkin, a small retainer will do. Huh? Mm. Oh, uh, yeah, well, uh, how much? Oh, as you wish, as you wish. But uh, as those drums would tell you, sentiment comes high in Haiti. I had a feeling that Dorna would keep Sam Torkin well occupied for the present. The future, of course, I'd handle in my own way. And in the meantime, there's nothing to worry about except keeping a date with two old friends. I found my friends in the clearing, fancy and legal, the head of the ceremonial party in a place of honor, as befitted them. Ah, Monsieur Ari, 
We don't think you ever come. No, I wouldn't have missed it, Fancy. You and Grigory are my favorite people. Oh, thank you. You are kind. You say that so often, Grigory. I almost believe it. Seriously, I wish you both much happiness. Merci. Merci. We will be happy always when we have friends like Ari Lyle. You have done so much for us. Our family. We cannot forget you. Fancy, old man. You go far with a wife like this. She says all the right things. It is the time. Oh, the marriage ceremony? Oh, no, no. We are married already. It is the moment to pledge ourselves to the authority. Authority? It is a tribal custom. Fancy. Please, Ari. These are tribal secrets. Oh, you don't trust your old friend with secrets? We can trust no one with his secrets. Fancy. Fancy, what's happening? What's that? It is the authority, the scepter, the sacred scepter of Henri Christophe. The scepter of Henri Christophe. Well, here was the souvenir for talking. I used to use good, experienced American radio writers to do the scripts. I'd been uh, doing the series for several um, several months when Orson came to me and said, what do you pay for these scripts, Harry? And I said, well, I just pay $1,000. I use good American writers and they're appreciative for the $1,000. Orson, of course, was short of money, said, I'll write you scripts, six scripts for $6,000. So the scripts turn up and I pay them the $6,000. And a few weeks later, there's a knock on the door of my apartment, which indeed is just one floor below where I live now, in the same address, 84 Hallam Street. And uh, I go to the door, my secretary goes to the door, and there's a very nice German gentleman, and he had in his hand copies of the scripts. And I said, yes, I recognize those scripts. He said, I wrote them, and I haven't been paid. So it happened that very afternoon, I was doing another show with Orson, and when the show was over, I said, Orson, I had a visitor today, and he produced copies of those six scripts which you sold me, and he said he wrote them, and he hadn't been paid. Without a flicker of guilt, Orson said, don't pay him, they weren't very good scripts. All right, Lime, all right, all right, who is this Henri no, Christophe? talking, you mean to say you never heard of him? Nah. Christophe was... Well, he was the, the, the George Washington of Haiti. Oh, every two-bit country's got its own Washington. Get me Washington scepter and I'm interested. Listen, listen, old man. Christophe started life as a slave. He became Haiti's most powerful ruler. At one point in his regime, talking, he stood off the combined armies of France and England with 2,000 men. On the north end of this island, old man, up near Le Cap. Huh? Le Cap, Cap Batien. Tremendous fortress high on the hill above the jungle. You've seen it, haven't you? Well, how could I miss it? It's big enough. It's one of the biggest. Washington didn't build that, talking. Christophe did. So what? He didn't just order it, Bill. He planned it, designed it, supervised the work, dug rocks out of the mountains with his bare hands. You're a self-made man, Torkin. That ought to appeal to you. What about the scepter, Lime? Look, old man. Henri Christophe is a landlocked saint to these people, an all-powerful earth god. While he lived, his scepter was his symbol of strength and wealth. Being king in those days was a profitable business, old man. Christophe had more jewels in that scepter than Dorna has curves. And there was a revolt here in Haiti, and Christophe was found dead, but the scepter was gone. For over a hundred years, its whereabouts have been kept secret. I know the secret, Torquil. 
I can get it for you. Yeah? How? It's my business. Your business is to make it worth my while. <sighs> okay, Lime. How much this time? Oh, plenty, old man. Fancy. Fancy, where are you? Oh, Gregory. Enter, Ari. Oh, you are welcome in the house of Fancy and Gregory. Ari, my friend Ari. Ah, it is Fancy, good. I've been looking for you. I've got to talk to you. Oh, we are always eager to listen. Fancy, it's, it's that scepter. Scepter of all. Oh. What's the matter? Oh, Ari, please, you must not ask. These are secrets of our people. But I've always considered myself one of your people, Gregory. My friend Ari, I, I have told you too much already. Please do not think any more of the scepter. It is forbidden to speak of it. Forbidden among friends? Ari, with the scepter, it is different. It is the authority. Is it? It is. It is the scepter of Henri Christophe. It is passed down from high priest to high priest. It is never out of their hands. It is the authority. Oh, that is enough to know. Please, ask no more. Grigory, would I ask if it weren't important? No, Ari, please. I've got to know more about it, Grigory. Fancy, you understand, don't you? Grigory, oh, don't make him say more, Ari, please. Don't make him say more, please. Please, please. <laughs> Yeah, come in. Fancy. Come in, old man. Come in. Ari, you do not mind that I come here? Of course not. Anytime. What's the trouble? I do not know. It is not my trouble. Eh? When you are at my house today, I see you have great trouble. I try to tell Grigri, but she do not understand. Trouble? Me? No, no, no. Wait a minute. I am tell her you are, must have great trouble or you would not ask for tribal secrets. Oh, well... It is all right, Ari. You are my friend. When you are in trouble, I help you. Oh, well... Well, good. That's the spirit, old man. You have done much for me and Grigri. This is for you. Oh? It is the scepter of Henri Christophe. It's... Fancy. It is yours. I could do no less. Fancy, it's... Now... It's... <laughs> you will have no more trouble, Ari. Well, now, wait a minute. Well, what about you? How did you get this thing, anyway? It is no matter. You stole it from the high priest. What if they find out you took it? They won't go to the police. No. They won't put you in jail? No. Well, what will they do? They will not put me in jail. They will not go to the police. The priest will be my judge. Fancy. What will they do? They will punish me. I will die. Then I thought a little bit more. And I realized that apart from the character of Harry Lyon, there was one very distinguishable thing about the movie, and that was the zither music of Van Holm Karras. Uh, and I realized that was copyright, so I popped it down to Bond Street into the office of Chapel and Co. I said, do me a favor, uh, you publish the Harry Lyme theme. Would you be kind enough to take a look at your contract with Karras and see whether or not you could license me to use it for a radio series? So he looked up the contract and said, no, you, I can give you a license for that. So I got the music. I had one more thing to get or two more things to get. One was Anton Carras himself. I happened to know his agent at that time in London, who'd been a theatre manager in Berlin. And uh, I said, I need Anton Carras to come to London for a week. And he's got a 
play the Harry Lime theme and lots more traditional Viennese music in little stabs and things so I can use the music throughout as the incidental music for a radio series. He said, all right, he said he's in demand, and, uh, but if you give him some good money, he'll come to London for a week. And Charles went into a studio and um, recorded the Harry Lime theme and all the music I needed for the radio series. And now Orson Welles, as the third man, continues with Voodoo. Had I known a man like Fancy earlier in my life, my ideas about all men might just possibly be a little different today. Here was the truest kind of friend. True in the real sense of the word true. He was staking his life, literally. Staking his life on his faith in <laughs> Harry Lyme. If I rejected his offer of the sacred scepter, I'd have shattered his faith in me. Fancy lived by his faith in his friends. And I did need the scepter. As for friends, well, there are many kinds of friendship. Harry. Hmm. Tell the truth. Hmm? Oh, sure. Donna, my love, you're ravishing. Oh, no. Not that. About the scepter. Oh, hmm. Got a cigarette? Mm-hmm. Here. Thanks. Is it really the scepter of holy crystal? Mm-hmm. Think Sam will buy it? Why not? Why is it so valuable? Historical significance, cluster of rubies, big fat sapphire in the middle. Harry. Mm hmm? What's it really worth? Oh, 20,000, maybe 25. Move the ashtray over, hmm? <laughs> Bet Talking would give me 35,000 for it. Think so? Mm hmm. I'm prettier than you. <laughs> right. But I have Christoph's scepter. Oh, but darling, if you let me peddle it to Tonkin... Dorna, my sweet, I lost you three years ago in Madagascar. The scepter might be a temptation if you'd leave me again. Oh, no. <laughs> Never no, mind that Harry. stuff. Never mind that cut it off. No. No. Wouldn't 35,000 be nicer than 25? Mm-hmm. Then why don't you let me Dorna, have the it? fact is, I don't have a scepter. What?! <laughs> Talking bought it this morning. Fifty thousand dollars. Harry, you <laughs> you <laughs> That's why you lost me in Madagascar. <laughs> Guess I've got to work on talking again. <laughs> Good old Sam. Yeah. Good old Sam. <laughs> Somehow, good old Sam ran a bad second. Dorna was no fool. She wasn't greedy. I was available, and I had money. Not as much as talking, of course, but enough to keep her satisfied temporarily. We decided on a small celebration, the sort that requires noisy public demonstrations with champagne bottles. We went to a little cafe, and I 
rather enjoyed the impression I was making, particularly on Georges. Would you like me to put this on your bill, Monsieur? Oh, certainly not, Georges, certainly not. I, I wouldn't want to cause any undue strain or suffering for your employer. But, Monsieur... Never mind, Georges, old man. Here, this should cover the situation, I think. Only oh, here, here's a little something for you. Thank you, Monsieur. You are... Oh, that... What's the matter? You will excuse me, Mr. E. I must go. Eh? I'm sorry, I must close the bar. Close the bar at this time of night? Just a minute. The drums, Monsieur E. You understand the drums? The drums? What? Why, George. It's the death drums. I do not have to tell you, Monsieur e. Why? What for? I don't know. You will excuse me. Harry, what is it? I don't know. Those are, those are the death drums. They mean someone's dead or dying. Or going to die. Going to die? Who? I don't know. I don't know. I have a hunch. I hope I'm wrong. Harry! Wait! Where are you going? Harry! Harry! When I got to the ceremonial grounds, I saw a frenzied sight, hundreds of natives, still dressed in the tattered dungarees of the cane fields, dancing, shrieking, half-hypnotized, and the drums. They were the drums of death, all right, no mistaking it. As I crashed through the brush surrounding the clearing, I saw that they'd already, already taken a life. There was a body, a dead body, strapped to a post in the center of the circle, Sam talking. The voodoo priest danced up and back in front of it, waving curses over it and screaming through the slits in a hideous mask. And in his hand, he held the scepter of Henri Christophe, the scepter that had cost Torkin more than he'd bargained for. I'd had enough. I turned to leave. And then at the far end of the clearing, I saw something else. Two more bodies tied together, back to back hanging by their wrists from a long cross pole strung between two trees. The two of them together, Fancy and Grigri, ready to be sacrificed. No! No, wait! Stop! Stop it, I tell you! Listen, all of you, listen! Listen to me! You're making a mistake. You're torturing... You're torturing two innocent people. You can't do it. They have wronged us. It was forbidden. They must be punished. No! They will die. Oh, they, they can't die. You're punishing them for something they didn't do. You think they sold the scepter to this man, but they didn't. I, I did. I made Fancy tell me about it. I'm the one you want. Listen to me. You've got to believe me. Harry Lime would not cause their death. Harry Lime is their friend. But I tell you it in my deal. And I'm the guy you want, so untie these ropes. Come on, move, or there'll be a new voodoo priest holding forth at your funeral. It's no use, Harry Lime. If you kill me, others will take the revenge. It's no use to kill these two, either. Okay, Grigri, you're loose. Help untie Fancy. Okay, I'll do it myself. Hold still, Fancy. There, you're loose. All right, come on. Come on, I'll get you two out of this. Then we're even. Harry, it is too late. You must go. That's come on, I'll help you now. Run for it. Stay back, you lunatics, or I'll start knocking off voodoos. I want you now. Stay back. That's better. Come on, Fancy. Grigri, get going. Speaking of first nights, I suppose the worst thing about any first night 
the critics. For us, uh, a critic at a first night is rather like a fairy godmother at a christening. From our point of view, it'd be so much nicer if the critics would only come on last night. Then they could exercise their undoubted flair for funeral orations. I remember one first night in Boston, it was, Henry V. We were doing the show on a revolving stage. There's a turntable, big circular stage that turns. And uh, when it came the great moment of the charge, I see you stand like greyhounds at the slips and so on. Uh, I had devised a plan which involved real bows and real arrows. This was uh, folly on my part, as it later turned out. But I had a, a large target made of cork just in the wings. And 40 of the English soldiery, played by Harvard men, students from the University of Harvard, this was in Boston, 40 of these stalwart fellows were to shoot their arrows into the wings, into the cork target. However, the revolving stage started to turn a little bit too soon. There I was saying, cry God for Harry England and St. George, and as I said it, the turntable slowly moved so that instead of looking off stage left, we were looking straight into the audience, and 40 bows and arrows were pointed right into the theater. And I thought to myself, as I came to the tag, well, they're university fellows. They're not going to just shoot into the audience. And so with a certain amount of uh, confidence, I launched into the great line, cry God for Harry England and St. George. It was a tremendous roar. And I noticed with horror that the roar was from the audience because indeed they had shot the arrows into the audience. Forty of them. We even scored a direct hit on the dean of critics. Thought of the story because of what sometimes can happen to a critic on a first night. Critics really ought to be more careful. Well, there goes Haiti, Donna. Another corner of the world chipped off. You'll be back, Harry. No. Fancy and Grigri are going to Cuba and time people learn the truth about me. Uh -uh. Hades through with Harry Lyme. You're really taking this seriously, aren't you? Mm, after my fashion. After my fashion. Yes, I messed up your meal ticket too, didn't I? Sam talking? Poor Sam. <sighs> Don't worry, Harry. You'll take care of me. Until the 50,000 is gone. Well. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought. Well, let's have a drink. Time returns in just a moment.
And now, Harry Lyon. <laughs> I know what you're saying. You're saying that wasn't Harry Lyme at all. You're saying the noble hero that pulled off that fancy rescue party wasn't the third man, he was a couple of other guys. Just goes to show how I misjudged. Well, ask Fancy and Grigory, now happily keeping house in a suburb of Havana. They'll tell you it really was Harry Lyme that got them out of that whole voodoo mess. Of course, they'll also remind you that I got them into it. And they might possibly mention that as the three of us dashed off into the jungle, I paused just long enough to borrow that scepter back from the high priest's Got a nice price for it, too, from a collector in Brussels. But that's another story. So long now, and if anybody should run into Dorna anywhere, in Timbuktu, for example, or the store club, give her my love. Remind her she owes me about 15,000 hard-earned American bucks, which seem to have slipped out of a hole in my pocket or something. No hard feelings, of course, but if you get a choice between voodoo, hoodoo, and little Dorna, I hope you'll know what to do about it. Take the voodoo every time. <laughs> 